0: Bindi Cole Chocker is one of the people who was um, party to the complaints against Andrew Bolt uh, several years ago, nearly 10 years ago now, I think uh, 7, 8, 9, 10. And the complaint against him at that stage was under Section 18C of the Racial Discrimination Act, language that was likely to offend someone. Uh, Andrew Bolt was found guilty of hurting somebody's feelings. Uh, because of uh, comments that he made which pertained to the way they identified racially. Now, what's remarkable about that, of course, the the battle against um, limiting free speech and the battle for free speech is, is being covered many times. But what's really, really interesting is that one of those people, Bindi, has actually had a change of mind since then. And this story, this turning around and going in a completely different direction, is very rare and quite refreshing in political debate. These days minds are hard to change. Uh, people seem to be stuck and dogmatic in their position. Uh, they, they see it as a personal insult when you attack their ideas. And something I always try and do and we all should try and do is, is attack bad ideas, but never people. Because uh, individuals and identities aren't what we're trying to debate. We're trying to get the best ideas possible and um, tackle difficult issues so that we can move forward, which is why we need free speech. So we can be critical, so people can get their feelings out of the road and focus on the facts. So when I heard about Bindi, I was like so many other people who've heard her story of, of change, really, really impressed at the intellectual honesty and the raw courage it takes to put your hand up and say, I got that wrong, and I'm more interested in truth than my feelings. So it's um, a really, really great privilege to get into this conversation in the next half hour or so. May all that you stand for, and that we stand for, be preserved under the providence of God for the happiness of mankind.
1: The trouble is caused by unthinking people who carelessly throw away ageless ideals as if they were old
0: and outworn machinery. But it is the values of individual liberty, equality before the law and the supremacy of people over the state to which we can always with confidence return as a powerful and uniting force. Australia is not a secular country, it is a free country. Bindi, thank you for joining me.
1: Thank you for having me, it's a pleasure to be here.
0: Now, for those who haven't heard of you before, tell us a little bit about um, who you are and and why people might have heard of you prior to the um, legal case with Andrew Bolt. Uh,
1: Well, I'm an artist and I was an artist uh, 10 or 12 years ago as well. And I made art about identity, which I uh, continue to do so today. And so when I first began making art, I was fortunate enough to have some of my initial artwork become uh, reasonably well-known quite quickly. And one of the reasons why I ended up in the court case with Andrew Bould is because he saw one of my artworks. And so um, he kind of pushed that out nationally and helped me to be established as an artist, even if it was in a kind of
0: infamous critically (laughs) right? yeah
1: Yeah. Uh, so I guess yeah I I think people might know me for my art potentially
0: sure so your art's been in lots of the national galleries and you've done tours with your art and I think uh, I'm not sure which um, publication or organization um, actually put this list together but at one stage uh, you were ranked in the top 100 of most influential people in Melbourne
1: Correct. In the last ten years, I think I've had about twenty-five solo exhibitions, sixty group shows, uh, one or placed in about fifteen art prizes. I think I, sorry, I've been finalist in about fifteen art prizes, one or wow. placed in six of them. So, in terms of the art world, everybody in the art world knows who I am. Sure. And then some beyond, probably more so, just because of um, the case that I was a part of, and because my art speaks as a form of social commentary. It's a personal uh, narrative, but often taps into social commentary.
0: Yeah, brilliant. Now, can you describe the artwork? And uh, if I can find a, a photo of it, I'll, I'll insert it here, but um, if, if I have your permission, but what, was the, what was the artwork that uh, Andrew um, was commenting on and, and what were his comments? But tell us about the artwork, what it looks like, what your message was with it yep. and, and Andrew's criticisms.
1: So this was probably, it was probably the second uh, photographic series that I ever made and at the time I was um, in my 20s, I had come out of a life that had been very difficult and had left me quite fragmented and and shredded in some ways and I was using art as a methodology to um, explore my identity. And one of the first ways in which I decided to explore my identity was to look at it racially. And um, growing up as a child, I'm clearly mixed heritage, but one of my racial identities is Indigenous. My father um, has Indigenous heritage. And so growing up, the only racial identity that was ever really acknowledged to me was my Aboriginal identity. Mm. Um, and so I decided that I was going to make an artwork that, um, that looked at that, but particularly looked at the tensions that that identity um, produced in me. I think I've always been interested in tension and discomfort. The things that make me uncomfortable are the things that I tend, tend to want to pull out and have a good look at yeah, <laughs> rather brilliant. than turn away from them. I still do it's that kind of the human, today.
0: It's kind of the human condition, isn't it? Exploring our pain, our suffering, our, our searches.
1: Yeah, that's right. But what you tend to do when you're interested in that is then make everybody else uncomfortable. So I realised that I was identifying as Aboriginal, but I was fair skinned and that made other people uncomfortable. Um, And I also realised that there was uh, a narrative at the time that continues today that says that if you're fair skinned and you identify as Aboriginal, you're doing so because you're opportunistic and there's a gravy train that you can get on board and that there's career and political clout to be had for identifying as Aboriginal. Now, I think there are many, many people who probably do that. However, at the time, I was genuine in my seeking and exploring of my identity. I wasn't really thinking about any of those things because I wasn't even really aware of politics and all, a whole range of things at the time um, and so I made a series of photographs of portraits of myself and my family in blackface and I guess what I was trying to do was turn myself into the stereotype that I thought everybody wanted to see um, I get so that. I get that. <laughs> and I and I didn't really think through the decisions that I was making as an artist I think through them more now because I understand the implications of what I do more but at the time I wasn't and I made this series of work and I put it out into the world and I called it not really aboriginal and it was a genuine expression of where I was Hmm. at the time um and he saw that Andrew Bolt and he said that what did he say he said that identifying racial differences that nobody can see is a waste of time and over the next two years he wrote about me numerous times um, using me as the poster child for this narrative of a fair-skinned person identifying as Aboriginal because mm. they're opportunistic.
0: Mm. Mm. And, and listening to it from your perspective I can see how that would have put your nose out of joint that, <laughs> that, that this was a genuine expression of... of Identity and self-vision for you how you saw yourself and and not something political You just didn't think about it with that level of sophistication. Can I use that word?
1: Yes, you can absolutely Um, I mean and where I am today is Another 10 years culmination of the same seeking journey that I began back then.
0: Yeah Um, Did you answer back did you you know engage in the um, the dialogue or the debate and say, Andrew Bolt, you're full of crap, you know, some people may, but I don't, or, you know, go to hell, who cares what you think? Um, were, were there any other recourses for you before you, you pulled the lawfare trigger?
1: No, there really wasn't any other recourse for me. I just kind of wore it. Um...
0: Did you feel there was a lack of options and that was your only option or did you just, just go straight to lawfare, just, despite, uh, despite there being other options?
1: Yeah. So, okay. So, I wore it for about two years Mm. at which point I was approached by a law firm to, Uh, (laughs) okay, I was approached by a law firm to ask if I wanted to take recourse (laughs) along with a number of other people Uh, that uh, were in a similar boat to me. So, this is the thing. I absolutely wanted to defend my character.
0: Cool. Sure, I get that.
1: Uh, yep. I didn't It's just realise. a shame a
0: journalist didn't approach you first and say, hey, do you want me to help you take show your side of the story um, or, or other things like that? I mean, I'm sure the ABC yeah. would have loved to run um, Andrew Bolt is wrong and he is why kind of articles.
1: I think, I think I may have had a little bit of press but not a lot and nothing that was particularly in depth or an opportunity to really have serious recourse. Mm. At the time I didn't even really understand. I didn't understand that I was entering into a higher philosophical argument about free speech.
0: Mm.
1: I just wanted to defend my character. When I entered into the court case, again, I didn't really comprehend that the laws that we were using were about setting quite a strong precedence around limiting free speech. I just wanted to defend my character the entire time. And so why I'm speaking out now is because I played such a big part in building this structure, giving the government overreach into our lives Mm. in terms of speech based on offence and humiliation. And I now feel it's my responsibility to Help tear down that structure that Mm. I helped to create. In hindsight it doesn't necessarily mean that I wouldn't have taken Andrew Bolt to court. I just wish I had have used defamation laws rather than the Racial Discrimination Act.
0: Yeah, I I think defamation laws are too liberal in Australia as well. far too easy but that's a slightly different topic um yeah i'd I'd like to explore this a whole lot because this is the political aspect which is which is fascinating but at the same time your whole life story is is really really interesting for the arc of it that you're that you're halfway through but have yet come so far already Um, and uh, the, the details which are out there in public, so I'm not betraying any confidence. I've spent some time on your YouTube channel and listened to your story and been very moved by the, the things you've you've gone through. And, um, you know, for, for those who have no idea at all who Bindi Cole Chokka is, is, um, you know, the the daughter of a mother who was addicted to heroin and a stripper and a prostitute. Um, that sometimes when there was no other options for you, for your your day, you actually went to the strip club or the, was it the brothel or just the strip club, um, the strip her,
1: club, the strip yep.
0: club with her lovely place for a child. Um, <laughs> yeah. and that, you know, uh, you actually got removed from your mother because of, of her incapacity to look after you for a number of years, you lived with your grandmother and then you, you did get reunited with your mother, uh, at about, was it 15? Uh, 13. 13. And then at the age of 16, um, your mother tragically died, which absolutely devastated your life. You were alone and financially um, responsible for yourself with nothing more than a a government payment. Um, And one way or another, you ended up in jail in the United Kingdom for a couple of years. Um, and then you made, I love the story look, I'm just really highlighting it. i encourage people, I'll put the link beneath this video so you can listen to Bindi telling the story in her own words, it takes about 45 minutes and it's gripping. I absolutely loved the account. Um, but on the way back from England, you got given business class upgrade while they, when they knew (laughs) who you were, the only person kicked out of the country in business class.
1: That's right. Uh, I like that
0: line. Um, and yeah, really, really um, great story. So there's there's this long trail of brokenness and and struggle, and lots and lots of really good reasons to feel like you're a victim that's been kicked around by life. Um, prior to coming up to this um, event with Andrew Bolt, and it, uh, in the in spite of all that, you actually had achieved a lot, a lot of profile, a lot of success in the art world. Um, So, yeah, now where I want to give back to you to tell your story is tell us about this this Road to Damascus experience where you've had a 180-degree turn both philosophically and politically and spiritually.
1: Well, it began in prison. It began the very first day I was locked up. Um, And to tell that story I probably need to just give a little intro into me getting locked up. So I ended up in in London when I was about 22, 23 and I was already a drug addict. Um, I didn't take heroin like my mum because I thought I'm not going to be like her so I just took all the party drugs instead. And when I decided to go to London, which a lot of people were doing back then who were my age, I um, just kind of picked up where I left off. The first day I arrived in London, I found a dealer and I used drugs. And within a year or so of being in London, um, I was 42 kilos. Wow. Overdosing. I think I overdosed three times. I was defibrillated. I was going into a drug-induced psychosis. Regularly and getting hospitalised for that because I wouldn't sleep for maybe three or four days on end. Wow. Um, and I had this sense that I was going to die. I knew that if I didn't stop what I was doing, I would die. My heart couldn't take much more, but I couldn't stop. I was so, um, I was such a, in such a strong hold of addiction that I had no control. And so I remember trying to get help. I remember knocking on the doors of rehabs in London, trying to see if they would take me in. No one would take me in. And then hearing, um, all of a sudden, one day hearing a voice inside me that said, call out to your call out to my son, call out to my son, call out to my son, call out to my son. To my son. And it was um, repetitive and overwhelming. Right. And I said, okay Jesus please help me and um, I always love when I get to that bit in the story because the next part of the story is that I was of course arrested (laughs) (laughs) and it's not what people expect. (laughs) Um,
0: (laughs) Jesus sent the police.
1: (laughs) Yeah that's right (laughs) but actually that's what happened. and so I had, I had been dealing drugs for many years. Throughout my entire childhood, I was exposed to crime. Dealing drugs was not something unusual to me. It was normal. I have many childhood memories of being in dealers' houses. It's just, it was just what it was. I was in relationships with dealers. Wow. Uh, and so I had been dealing drugs in London in nightclubs in gay nightclubs I'd been selling um ecstasy and speed and cocaine and so I was arrested for that and locked up and the moment that I stepped into that first prison cell I it was like this peace came over me and I knew it was over I'd spent 24 years running and Mm. in such pain and I knew that it was finally kind of finished and that this was going to be my opportunity to turn it around and uh I then was not released from jail for two years. I was sentenced to four years and I ended up serving two years. And in that time, I gave my life to Jesus. I began to attend church, to read the Bible, to pray. I did therapy, uh, 12-step programs, rehab. Uh, I just made use of every single resource that was available to me within prison as well as asked all of the hard questions. And it was the first time in many years that I had no access to drugs. And alcohol, uh, and I had all my needs taken care of, and I was supported.
0: Wow! And wow. It, So it, it doesn't sound to me like you were gaming the system. Again, it was a, a genuine, um, a, a genuine thing that you were going through and and um, travelling.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, you don't you don't really do better until you know better, I suppose. And my life is testament to that. Yeah. I've gone along trying to do the best that I can with the circumstances dealt to me, whenever I've learnt or had an opportunity to be better I've done that mm. um, and for me, you know, many people say there but for the grace of God go I when they talk about things like prison like that could have happened to them but for me God absolutely placed me in this place
0: there, by the grace of God went I
1: exactly right because he needed me he needed time to get my attention, he needed time, enough time for me to make serious changes in my life, to be supported. All of that time, despite the life that I'd lived, I'd never had any type of counselling or therapy. I was, My head was filled with all these lies about myself. I thought I was ugly. I thought I was actually deformed and repulsive. I had that much self-hatred because mm-hmm. of the life that I'd lived. I, I just believed all of these lies and I needed time to unpack all of those lies to get a uh, A serious grip on reality basically and to think about what I was here for, what is life about and how do I want to live my life. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah.
0: Now take us to I guess recent history, how long ago was it where you realized I was wrong about um, that court case?
1: That was only in the last couple of years. So, and what
0: brought I that was,
1: about? Yeah, I was in prison almost twenty years ago now, um, and I had my first encounter with God then, and it it changed me. But it took me a long time before I began to wholeheartedly uh, walk out my Christianity. That only happened about ten years ago. Yeah, that's right. Even though I had this really full on supernatural encounter and. Uh, was really changed by it. I think once I was released and sent back to Australia, I didn't quite know what to do with what I'd been given, and I had, I was scared of becoming the thing that I mocked. So prior to my experience in Christianity, I actually mocked Christians. I thought they were weak, unintelligent, victims needing a crutch, belonging to a cult. Yep. Um, <laughs> and then I knew that that was a lie, but if I was going to fully become a Christian, then I was going to join that group of people that were uh, mocked and denigrated by the world. And I think it took me a long time to really build up the courage to be able to wholeheartedly step out and go, actually, I'm willing to risk everything.
0: If you're looking for an easy road, there's uh, easier ones.
1: (laughs) Yeah, Christianity is not an easy road, actually. It's very uncomfortable.
0: Yeah.
1: just it's if you don't against like the, truth. the grain. <laughs> yeah it's against the grain it's against the culture mm. it's um, christians not not I'm not talking about in in this country, but globally, Christians are the most persecuted people in the world. Nobody wants to know that or acknowledge that, but that's the truth, truth. absolutely you, true you know, they're wow. hated and denigrated and and I knew what that meant because that's who I had been.
0: We actually think there's you know dark periods in way back when when Christians were fed to the lions and and you know put on stakes covered in pitch and set a light to to illuminate Nero's garden parties, and they were the dark days for Christians. There's more Christians martyred now than in any time previous in history. That's Mart- right. martyred, not just persecuted, um, but actually lay down their lives f- for Jesus' name.
1: That's right. Absolutely. And nobody talks about that. The media is not interested in it. It's, um, it's an absolute shame mm. that this is not acknowledged in the world today. Um And so I, I guess it just took me a long time to work, walk it out. I guess I needed some more pain. I needed to make sure 100% that there was no other way to this fount of satisfaction that I'd found, that Jesus was the only way. I needed to look a little bit more at new age and some other different things and make sure <laughs> that there was no easier way. Yeah, right. And, <laughs> and then finally, about 10 years ago, wholeheartedly, began to walk out my my faith
0: five years ago ten years ago ten years ago sorry okay
1: and as I began to wholeheartedly walk so at the so same that was time actually prior, court case,
0: that was actually prior to or at the same time as the court case same time Okay. the
1: same time as this court case is going on I'm starting to wholeheartedly walk out my Christianity and so a whole lot of things conspired to come together to give me revelation and open my eyes to the fact that I wasn't fully aware of a complete range of higher moral, philosophical and political ideas. Um, You and a
0: lot of other Christians.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I didn't realise that I was so far positioned on the left. I didn't have an understanding of what the opposite of that might be or what any other political position might really be. I didn't understand conservatism, libertarianism, I didn't understand um, what free speech meant. And so as this- Well, you
0: never learn these kind of things in, in school. Uh, the, the last thing our or public, public education um, teaches us about is how our nation works, how democracy, politics and philosophy work.
1: Correct, that's right. And so you grow up in your own bubble and you think Mm. that that's all correct until something comes and begins to challenge that. And so as I begin to walk out my Christianity wholeheartedly, I'm going through the court case, I'm starting to look into and become aware of other philosophical, political uh, positions, I start to read into those and look into them, I start to read the Bible through in its entirety, Mm-hmm. And um, as I do this, my whole um, political position begins to shift and my whole understanding of culture begins to shift and the way wow. that I view culture, I start to view it through the Scriptures
0: Brilliant. and
1: through the history of the world which the Bible contains mm. um, and the different movements that go on throughout that and everything just starts to get very messy for me as um, I begin to take on a whole new identities. Yeah. It's like the old... it's a beautiful a long,
0: mess though isn't it?
1: It is a beautiful mess, an uncomfortable yeah. beautiful
0: yeah.
1: mess that you need to really spend time yeah. figuring out and yeah. I've spent the last 10 years and part of that revelation was beginning to understand in the last three or four years um, what I'd actually done in terms of free speech. Mm. Yeah. It's been an interesting interesting journey but what I would want to say to people who are in that same conversion space is that for some people that can be quick but for me it was very slow. I went through a 15-year conversion. (laughs) The last (laughs) 10 years have been the most uncomfortable Mm. but it's kind of like you, you need to spend time coming to Christianity and coming to any type of conversion in discomfort. You need to understand that your old identity doesn't really fit anymore. Your new identity doesn't quite fit yet Mm. and there'll be a period of time in the middle but eventually that new identity will fit very well and you will be comfortable with it. It just takes time as you wrestle through this this mess.
0: And so what kind of, um, I guess I I want to explore one more issue that I've heard you articulate um, before I ask what I was just about to and that is tell me about how you now see the attitude you had before and what was wrong about that, specifically with regards to the word victimhood.
1: Right, so for me, victimhood is a huge thing and it's why I often speak out against particular things because I absolutely saw myself as a victim for many, many years and I, and I, in some ways, was justified in that because of the life that I'd lived, mm. however, however, what I allowed that to do was to give me uh, an excuse to justify all sorts of behaviors. So I could say, "Oh, uh, you know, yes, I've done terrible things. I've dealt drugs. I've done all these things, but but look, look at my life. It wasn't my fault. Mm. Right down to smaller things, you know, I could justify all sorts of um, behavior. That's just not great because of the victim." mentality that I held and while I held a victim mentality, I blamed everybody else. It kept me stuck in anger and resentment and unforgiveness. So I could never really move forward until I acknowledged my part in everything and becoming a Christian meant that I the positions in my mind were flipped, instead of me being the victim, Christianity forced me to look at all the ways in which I was a perpetrator. Wow. And when I began to do that and see myself as the perpetrator, as the wretch rather than as the victim, Mm. I was able to take responsibility for my behaviours, to forgive everybody that had hurt me, to stop judging everybody and that's when I actually experienced true freedom. Wow. and was able to move forward into my future and, and that's not the carrying promise. all this baggage
0: that's the promise isn't it that like that's why you would go through this is because it's it's in finding yourself truly honestly looking at yourself and the world as it really is not as you wish it was that's when you actually get freedom that like uh, one of the best things you can experience is bad feelings feeling bad about yourself if you let that catalyze a positive change. yes. If if that says, I'm now going to become a better person, I'm now going to become a bigger person, I'm going to evolve, I'm going to mature, I'm going to continue this journey. Life isn't an arrival, it's a journey. Um, And we're always getting better. And Christianity itself isn't a a status symbol of holiness, perfection, or some holy club. It's actually a confession that I am lost with, yeah. without the author of truth. I am lost without an objective, eternal perspective on who I am and who I need to become. It, it's it's you know the word you used, freedom, is mm. is actually the exciting part of why we would want to go on this journey. Um, and if anybody considers themselves in, intellectually honest and wanting to approach politics, philosophy, and reality with, with an intellectually honest um, lens, there's no better way than a, a Christian perspective that's authored by someone outside of the human experience. It's the most um, complete picture of who we are possible.
1: That's right. I love that Christianity forced me to see myself... As the wretch, mm. because what that then did was make me see that there's there's no victim identity in Christianity. Right, you can't be the victim in it. Yep. You have to take responsibility for everything you've ever done.
0: Mm.
1: You know, and that was great. Yep. That sense of me being the perpetrator, me having to take responsibility, um, set me free. And yeah. I guess under. Right, underlining everything that I speak about and um, push out into the world today is that desire for everybody to experience that freedom. Yes, Chris, exactly. Christian or not, you don't have exactly. to be a Christian to uh, to break out of your victim mentality. Mm-hmm. Those things—forgiveness, um, letting go of bitterness and resentment, and stopping judgment—sets everybody free, regardless yeah. of Chris being a Christian. Yeah.
0: Or not. And and that's exactly why I do this show is because um, it's like if you've got this truth, if you've got this freedom, like how dare you keep it to yourself? Yes. It's the most selfish, hateful thing you could do to leave your neighbor or your 25 million neighbors um, stumbling around in the darkness. It's like it's okay if we disagree. I'm not taking it personally. If if somebody hates me because I'm a Christian or a conservative or, or whatever pigeonhole you want to put me in. All I'm interested in is truth. If you've got truth, let's talk about it because I want it. Um, do you? because uh, yes. you know that's that's exactly what we want to share. it's it's this is freedom. How do right. how do we make our nation better? How do we make our neighbors' lives better? Um, you know some of the recent debates that we've had, people ask, you know what's it got to do with you? Well, like that's not the test for public interest. That's like, it, it's actually, we need to take an interest in each other's lives because we're a society, we're a community. Um, we knit together, we build together, we move forward together. Um, now, one of the other things that I've really been Im- moved by, now I don't want to say impressed, it, it's more than that. Let's like, There's some truth and there's some freedom here that I, I think is absolutely powerful for Australia. And this is a message I would, especially if I can get this up before Australia Day, um, Um, The work of art you did with, uh, you'll have to tell me the exact number of emu feathers um, that got taken off to, was it Queensland Museum?
1: Yes.
0: (laughs) Uh, Is that still there? I might have to go see if I can see it. Um, Is it on display? Do you know?
1: Yeah, I don't think it's on display, but it's in their collection. Ah, That's terrible. I want to go see it. (laughs) They bought it, which is
0: amazing. Wow, that's awesome. But um, I'll, I'll show the photo of it right now. Uh, I forgive you in these massive letters. Tell me about the message of forgiveness, especially as we approach Australia Day, especially as someone who at least partly identifies as Aboriginal Australian.
1: Personally, I believe that forgiveness is the greatest tool that God's given us. It's um, the tool that ultimately sets us free. It's when we see ourselves as a wretch and then we ask for forgiveness and we are given forgiveness freely, that's when we can begin to give it out and that sets us free from everything that's holding us back in terms of anger, resentment and blame. And so I made that particular artwork, I Forgive You, uh, quite a few, I think 2012 it was a response to Kevin Rudd's apology. So, uh, because I thought that's the that's, response that's missing.
0: Absolutely. absolutely. That's exactly, <laughs> exact, exactly what I've been thinking. And I, everybody I know has been thinking for ages. Like, I wasn't there, you weren't there, but we've apologized so many times. Not just Kevin Rudd. I've been in countless church services where we've apologized and repented and wept with our Aboriginal brothers and sisters. And like what we want more than anything is reconciliation, but can it ever happen without forgiveness?
1: I don't believe so. And I think that's what's driving the woundedness in this country. And that's what's driving the disadvantage and dysfunction in Aboriginal communities is this sense of anger, resentment, and bitterness towards this country. Um, And I believe it's also covering up and enabling people to not take responsibility for a lot of terrible terrible behaviours that's going on within Aboriginal communities. For example in the last nine days five Aboriginal children committed suicide they got to a point in their lives where they believed that death was better than life so that's a terrible symptom of what's going on in these communities. Yeah. Now I think a time has already come and gone where colonisation has needed to be acknowledged. Now it's being used to uh, d- to disempower and perpetuate a victim mentality that stops people from taking responsibility. Mm. I don't think that's a popular opinion, but I think that's truth.
0: And how is that being received in the Aboriginal community that you that's in your circle of influence in your network?
1: Yeah, so I know of a few outspoken people who are on board with that, but I would say that the majority of the Aboriginal community, um, particularly in the inner cities and the urban communities, are not. Mm. They are not interested in this. Um, There's a real push for the fact that all of the problems today in Aboriginal communities are due to intergenerational trauma because of colonisation and the stolen generations.
0: How much do you um, harmonise with or agree with uh, the message that Candace Owens is preaching um, in America, that um, the left of politics, the Democrat Party in America and the Labour Party, Greens here in Australia, are are actually perpetuating a kind of slavery of black people um, in the fact that they're essentially employing them as useful idiots, to put another famous leftist's term, Lenin. Describing people who are supporting an, a a an agenda and a party without actually knowing what's driving it, what's behind it, and the the true nature of what's going on. And, and Candace Owens, a black woman, is is basically saying, "Look, I used to be like you. I used to think like you. Um, but it's time to um, leave the plantation. It's time to get off and stop being dictated to on how to think." Um, by by the Democrat Party. You know, we're not victims. We're responsible for our own destiny and future and culture, and we need to keep growing and keep moving forward and not be stuck in the past.
1: And stop looking to the government to save us. I 100% am on board with what Candice Owen says, so much so that right now I'm making an entirely new artwork out of feathers, same, probably bigger, maybe 15 metres long out of about... 25,000 emu feathers that wow. spells out welfare is slavery
0: brilliant brilliant yeah
1: because i 100 percent believe with what she's saying mm. i feel like there's a place for welfare however mm. it can become a form of disempowering yeah. slavery yeah and underneath that message is again this idea of personal responsibility and freedom like yeah. The government is not where we need to turn to save us, it's it's actually um, a very low expectation hmm. on people if they're saying, this is your fault, our problems are your fault, we don't have to fix them, you have to come in and fix them.
0: Yep.
1: Um, it's really, really disempowering
0: right. to
1: trust the government in this way. The government is not to be trusted in this way, it's uh, a dangerous thing and the only way change is going to happen within Indigenous communities is if it arises from within the communities.
0: So true. So true, Bindi. I'm so glad you're saying this. And um, I genuinely pray for the sake of our nation um, and especially, you know, my Aboriginal brothers and sisters that that they get this, that they they hear this path to freedom, um, you know, that leave the mission, you know, stop being patronised start because the power when you look to other people for responsibility you give them your power if you ask them to take the responsibility for something going wrong in your life you've given away the power that you should own and keep for yourself
1: absolutely 100 percent
0: agree it's total i could totally get the community thing we should try and solve problems together and and we're stronger together but that doesn't mean you abdicate responsibility and and look outside yourself you have to start looking inside yourself and then like it's the let's build this country together because the the people that are hating the national symbols of australia including australia day are tearing us down and they're tearing us down that includes themselves that's everything about australia and it's heartbreaking um because it's divisive destructive it's full of resentment like the the bitter fruit on this tree of blacktivism is really really sad to see we could be doing so much better and moving so much forward um, more positively and, and, to get, and together we have to take that that's the, the message from me and I, I hear it from you and unfortunately because i'm as white as the driven snow um, you're you're going to be more credible for it but even then people are rejecting it because it's not the message they want to hear that the power is yours don't give it away um, there's freedom in forgiveness. Um, thank you so much for the courage um, that you're showing. I'm, I'm sure there's some repercussions in the art world um, for for somebody <laughs> being right of Mao.
1: Yeah, you know, I'm not sure how my career is going to pan out in the next few years after coming out and speaking particularly um into free speech and these type of indigenous issues and all of this kind of conservative yeah. side of life but I think for me it's more important uh, that I am genuine and have integrity Good. and uh, speak the truth the truth not my truth the yeah. truth yeah um, right exactly regardless of the consequences
0: it's uh it's admirable because um it's ironic that the art world would normally celebrate a, a narrated journey for an artist um, unless that journey takes them to uncomfortable places which confront something in the art world like leftism is corrupt. Um, yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate uh, you coming on and having a chat with me and hopefully it's not the last.
1: Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure to be here and I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Today we need a special kind of courage